Hello everybody, Eric Grenier here and welcome to the second episode of The Writ Podcast. Let's uh, get right into it. So election fever is continuing and uh, I suspect it will be going on for several more weeks as these uh, strong polls for the Liberals keep getting published. Now we've seen a few of them and I want to talk about them later in the polls of the week that recently have given the Liberals huge leads over the Conservatives, sometimes of double digits. Now not all the polls are showing that. But it does suggest that, if anything, things are getting better for the Liberals at this time rather than worse or stabilizing. So if the Liberals were already thinking of holding a summer election, I don't believe that these polls are going to change anything about that. And if we're just looking at what's been going on over the last few weeks, there are some indications that an election might be in the offing. We've seen lots of ministers making announcements. Trudeau, uh, today I'm recording this on Wednesday, is in Alberta the kind of place that he might not want to spend much time on the campaign trail, but could afford to spend some time in Alberta before the campaign starts. We've also seen recently that announcements about a high-frequency train service uh, that is going to be increasing train travel between uh, Toronto and Quebec City. Notably, it is going to include a new line that is going to go on the north shore of the St. Lawrence and it's going to have a stop in Trois-Rivières. Trois-Rivières was a key swing riding in the last election. It was a three-way race. The Bloc Québécois won it. They don't have an incumbent this time. Liberals would very much like to win that seat. The fact that they've just announced that there will be a new uh, train stop in Trois-Rivières is certainly not going to hurt them. And when that announcement was made, uh, François-Philippe Champagne, uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, so two Quebec cabinet ministers were at the announcement, but also Joël Lightbound, who is an MP for the Quebec City region. They were there. That's the kind of thing that looks a lot like an electoral kind of announcement. So I I imagine that's not too much of a coincidence. There was also uh, Mary Simon was named the new governor general. There hasn't been a governor general for quite a while because Julie Payette resigned after uh, there was allegations that she uh, was not a, a very good employer. Now that means that There won't be any awkward request from the Prime Minister to Supreme Court Justice Richard Wagner, who was replacing Payette in an interim role, uh, to dissolve Parliament. Instead, it can be a Governor General uh, who will actually dissolve Parliament rather than uh, a Supreme Court Justice. Obviously, it's also a very strong signal for reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, uh, which is very much something that the Liberals want to show that they have Uh, made some progress on, particularly with the recent discovery of uh, the remains of children at at residential schools. Now, she doesn't speak French, but she's an Inuk from Kujouak, which is in the north of Quebec. And uh, the government has taken lots of steps and signaled their support for the French language over the the last few months. So I think that that mitigates any damage that it could have had uh, among uh, Francophone voters. And also, she has a stellar resume, seems to be a very impressive person. So I, I don't think this will be a, uh, in a an election problem whatsoever. And if anything, it is uh, seems to be potentially a very good move for them. There's also something um, that is linked to the speculation over when an election will be called, and that is Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is due to have an election soon. Uh, just earlier this week on the writ.ca, I published my seat ratings for Nova Scotia. Uh, I awarded 31 seats to the Liberals, 13 to the Progressive Conservatives, and three to the New Democrats, with another eight that are toss-ups too close to call. Now, you only need 28 seats in Nova Scotia to have a majority government, so it does seem like the Liberals, at this stage, would be in a good spot for it. There's been a bit of news out in Nova Scotia recently. Elizabeth Smith-McCrossin, she was 
someone who was seemed to be involved with that border protest that happened between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia that uh, did not go over very well. She denies that she had any deep involvement with that. But she's decided that after being booted from the PC caucus is going to be running as an independent in Cumberland North. So that does make that riding one that's a bit more interesting and is not good news for the progressive conservatives uh, that just another seat that they would have had a good shot of winning, they now have to fight for. And for the Liberals as well, Ian Rankin, the uh, the Premier, he acknowledged on Monday that he had twice been charged with impaired driving in his early 20s. In a way, it almost seems like he's getting this out of the way before an election call, maybe preempting any opposition research or something like that. It is odd timing for that kind of thing. So it is the kind of signal that suggests they're thinking about holding an election soon. Any sort of has to go soon because of some recent resignations in the legislature in Halifax, including Stephen McNeil, the former premier that Ian Rankin replaced. Liberals are technically a minority in the legislature, so they don't want to face the opposition later in the fall, which, again, another signal that they'll probably want to go sometime soon. If Nova Scotia does go now, do the feds have to wait until that election is over? Now, in Nova Scotia, an election it's a minimum of 30 days, and it's held on a Tuesday. So let's say that Rankin decides to call the election this weekend. That would mean the election would be held on August 10th. Federal elections, they're usually kicked off on Sundays, traditionally. So that puts us at August 15th for a September 27th vote if the uh, Trudeau Liberals decide they want to have the shortest election possible, which would probably make the most sense. So those could end up being some important days to mark on the calendar. We'll have to watch what happens in Nova Scotia, because if Nova Scotia does go to the poll soon, it does probably mean that the federal liberals will wait until the election is over. Now, they might not necessarily do that. We saw in Manitoba, a provincial election in 2019 was called, and the federal campaign uh, was kicked off before that election was over. But the federal election was scheduled, The Manitoba one, uh, Brian Pallister, decided to go early. And the progressive conservatives in Manitoba have no favors that they need to return to the federal liberals in Ottawa, uh, whereas the Nova Scotia liberals and the federal liberals are two parties that are pretty closely aligned. So uh, one imagines they're going to uh, figure out some days on the calendar that work for both of them. Now, I wanted to get to the polls of the week because... It is a lot about election speculation, and there were a lot of polls that came out this past week. Uh, There are five of them that I want to highlight, Uh, just to go over them quickly. There was an Ipsos Global News poll. This was done in June 17th to 22nd. Uh, 1,501 were surveyed online. There was an Abacus Data poll done June 28th to 30th, 1,500 surveyed online. There was uh, an Ecos Research poll that was uh, quoted in the Hill Times, though incompletely. All it said was that it was conducted last month, so sometime in June. There was a Nanos research poll. This is their rolling four-week poll. The results were tweeted out by David Aiken of Global News. It's a poll that's usually paywalled, but Aiken put out the numbers on Twitter. And then finally, the one that's most recent is a Leger Canadian press poll. This was done July 2nd to 4th. 1,518 people surveyed online. Now, these polls generally showed very strong numbers for the Liberals. Ipsos, 12-point lead for the Liberals. Abacus, 12-point lead for the Liberals. Nanos, 14-point lead for the Liberals. Ecos, 9-point lead. And then there was Leger that only had a 3-point lead. So that does raise some questions about whether those huge margins we're seeing in those other polls are real. 
and if Leger is closer to the mark, they were very good in the last election, or is Leger the one that's on the outside? Leger doesn't usually have a lot of oscillation in their polls from one to the next, so maybe it's not too surprising that Leger's not capturing the same amount of shift in voting intentions as the other uh, pollsters are. But you look at some of these numbers for the Conservatives, 25% in Abacus, 26% in Ipsos, 24% in Nanos. That would be the worst ever. The Conservatives have never been that low in an election, uh, if we're talking historically. The old Conservative Party, the Progressive Conservatives, and the combination of the PC's Reform Alliance in the 1990s and the 2000 election, never been that low. And there's some serious numbers there that are really problematic. Uh, Both Abacus and Ipsos had the Conservatives at just 38% in Alberta. Uh, That's terrible for a party that had 69% of the vote in 2019. And also seeing in those Ipsos-Abacus polls that the Conservatives were trailing the Liberals by 7 points or 9 points among men and were down uh, 11 points behind the Liberals among those over the age of 55 in the Ipsos poll. They were down by 12 points among those over the age of 60 in the Abacus poll. Those are usually conservative voters. And in these polls, they're suggesting that this base, this most important cohort of voters for the uh, conservatives, is abandoning them. That is really, really not great news. Now, the Leger, again, is the one that is on the odds uh, with those polls. They have them at 54% in Alberta. Still a big drop, but by no means catastrophic. Uh, trailing only by one point among men and tied with the Liberals among those over the age of 55. So we'll have to wait and see if more polls uh, come out soon, whether one of these narratives turns out to be uh, closer to the mark. Some really interesting numbers, though, from the Abacus poll uh, on accessible voter pools. So people who would consider voting for uh, a party. Liberals are at 56%. That's up six points from where they were in July 2019, so before the 2019 election. So they've increased the number of people who would consider voting for them. Uh, the NDP has also done that. They're at 48%, up four points in the block. The block has actually increased by 14 points in Quebec to 43% in terms of accessible voters. So that suggests that uh, the block is much more of a factor than it was going into the 2019 election campaign. Going into that campaign, the block was not polling that great. They were in the low 20s. Um, sometimes below 20%. So it does reflect, I think, part of that, that the bloc is now much more of a factor than it was going into 2019. But nevertheless, it is a sign that the bloc is uh, going to be something that has to be paid attention to. The Conservatives, their accessible voter pool dropped seven points from 2019 to 41%. Now that's really problematic for them because you're never going to get 100%. So the fact that the Conservatives, uh, their ceiling appears to be 41%, that doesn't leave them a lot of room for error if they're trying to win an election. Uh, The Greens, they've also dropped quite a bit. They've dropped seven points to just 33%. Now, maybe this is uh, a reflection of how the Greens were doing well in 2019 and seem to have some momentum, and now they don't. Could be the recent turmoil within the Green Party that is sapping their strength uh, and causing some problems for them. Some other uh, things to uh, look at In these polls, that seem to uh, represent some common threads. One is the Conservatives are in third place in British Columbia, in the Ipsos poll, Abacus poll, and also in the Leger poll. Uh, So this does suggest that the Conservatives are having some issues in British Columbia, and that does open up some possibilities for the Liberals, but also for the NDP, because some of the seats that the NDP targets in British Columbia 
are either three-way races between the Liberals, Conservatives, and NDP, or they're uh, two-way races, NDP-Conservative battles. Also, the Ipsos poll, the Nanos poll, and the Leger poll, I'll put uh, Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole more or less neck and neck on who Canadians prefer to be Prime Minister, and both of them well behind Trudeau. That's not a good sign for Aaron O'Toole that he's getting the same marks as Jagmeet Singh, who most Canadians don't expect to become Prime Minister because the NDP traditionally doesn't win elections. Um, so that is a, another problem for the Conservatives. And uh, lastly, one of the things just to highlight in the Leger poll, 48% of Canadians said the top issue going into this campaign, assuming it happens, is economic recovery. So it's not about COVID, it's about getting out of COVID. And that is probably not a bad thing for the Liberals because they're trying to campaign on build back better as uh, the slogan that they're using. Rebuilding healthcare after COVID-19 was second, but only at 19%. So this is really going to be about where Canada is going forward in terms of getting the economy going again. Uh, Some interesting polls this week. We'll see what's coming out in the next uh, week or so. Okay, uh, next, the Q&A. Now, I wanted to talk about the Greens in the first segment of the podcast, but I got a question from Braden Kane, so I wanted to just get into it in this uh, Q&A segment. Now, his question he had on Twitter was, how do you think the Green Party will perform in the next election? What ridings, regions are winnable for them? And how do you think enemy Paul's leadership will affect uh, their electoral prospects? The story for the Green Party has just been a disaster for the last few weeks. Uh, I don't want to go too far into the details, but uh, I think a, a lot of the blame goes on both sides of this. Uh, I'm not sure that Annemie Paul's uh, handling of this issue has been particularly good. Uh, the fact that she didn't uh, immediately uh, disavow a top advisor who was threatening to defeat her own MPs, you just wouldn't see that in other parties. The fact that she told the media that the ultimatum that the Green Party Council had put on her was no longer a problem and then was contradicted the same day by the party council that said that, no, the ultimatum was still there. That's not particularly good on her part. Um, Blaming the liberals for um, blaming the liberals for being misogynist for trying to attract a female MP to the liberal benches to undermine a female leader uh, it doesn't really have a lot of cohesiveness, uh, that argument. But then the party itself also seemingly not trying to make things any easier, not really trying to keep this internal. Uh, we had the report uh, that was mentioned last week in uh, David Thurton's article in the CBC, and it was reported as well this week by the Toronto Star, that she was muted on a call with the party council about staffing uh, layoffs, potentially weeks before an election. It's just an incredible story that suggests that the party is not in a good spot. And I can't imagine that this uh, bodes well for running a good campaign. How is a campaign going to be uh, well run across the country when it is seemingly at war with itself? It just doesn't make sense. Now, will this actually have an impact on Green Party support? Well, it won't help. I don't see how it could help. And for a lot of voters, the Greens, if climate change, the environment is not particularly your top priority, but a new way of politics, less partisan kind of politics, this kind of 
strain of, of Green Party politics has been very successful in Atlantic Canada, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. A lot of voters like the Green Party, not because or not just because they're an environmentalist party, but because they seem to have a different approach, more collaborative, more nonpartisan. People like that. People don't like partisan politics. But all of this stuff that's happening with the Green Party just sounds like old party politics. And so I think that it has the the big danger that it turns a lot of people off who might have looked to the Greens to be something different. But it also turns off a lot of people who don't want to vote for a party that doesn't seem to have its act together. So let's put that aside a little bit, um, (laughs) if we can. But to get to the question, how do I think the Greens will perform in the next election? I, I mean, they're always a wild card. They're always a party that's supposed to do really well, and then they don't. Maybe this campaign will be different. Uh, Anne Paul is uh, a new leader. She brings something different to the table than Elizabeth May did. She has a good debate performance. Who knows what can happen for the Green Party? Uh, but I, I the, you know, the signals at this stage aren't voting very well for them. But what could they do? Well, let's break it down into three different regions. Uh, British Columbia, it's where they currently have their only two MPs. It's where the Green Party has traditionally its most strength. There are a few ridings there where they have a good shot. Victoria on uh, Vancouver Island, they took 30% of the vote in the last election. They were down only three points from the NDP who won it. So it wouldn't take much for them to win that seat. So that would be their top target. Elsewhere in British Columbia, uh, Esquimalt, Saanich, Sook, they took 26% of the vote. They're down eight points from uh, the NDP in that riding. If things go well for them, that's another one they could target. There are a couple other ridings in BC where they got at least 20% of the vote, but they were more than 10 points back of the winner. So I think that's a different conversation. That's a conversation where the Greens are in the midst of a lot of momentum, and then they can win a lot of seats. Then maybe we can talk about some of the other ridings the Greens could win. Atlantic Canada was a very promising area. Not sure now. Janik Atwin, who crossed the floor from the Greens to the Liberals, uh, was from Fredericton. That was a breakthrough that they won. It was a very close race, so her re-election was by no means assured. Now that she will be running for the Liberals, um, maybe Fredericton is no longer winnable for the Greens. And maybe what happened is not going to help other Green candidates elsewhere in Atlantic Canada. But there'd be um, the riding of Beauséjour in New Brunswick. It's not one that I think the Liberals should have any concern about because Dominique Leblanc is the... Uh, MP there. He's been there for a long time, cabinet minister, high profile, a liberal. Uh, but the Greens do hold a provincial seat in what is the federal riding Beauséjour. They took 27% of the vote in 2019, but they're still 20 uh, points back of Leblanc. I don't see how they win that unless something big happens. And then there's two ridings on Prince Edward Island, Malpec and Charlottetown. And Malpec they had 27% of the vote. Charlottetown, they had 23%, but they're still well back of the Liberals. Malpec, maybe it's an opportunity because Wayne Easter isn't running. But again, I think the, the Greens have to show some sign that their campaign is not going into a ditch before they can start thinking about winning PEI. Now, the last place would be Ontario. What was actually surprising is that Kitchener Centre was one of their better ridings. They took 26% of the vote. They were down only 11 points from the Liberals who won it. In Guelph, which isn't too far from Kitchener, um, and where the Ontario provincial leader has his seat, also took 26% of the vote. They're 15 points back. But those two seats are ones that, if the Greens get a little bit of momentum, maybe they can win. But I think the most important seat for the Greens and for Annemie Paul is obviously the one that she'll be running in, Toronto Centre. She did really well in the by-election. She took 33% of the vote. She cut the margin uh, uh, with the Liberals down to just nine points. 
But that was a bit of a perfect storm. Can Anime Paul bridge that nine-point margin and win it in a general election campaign? That'll be more difficult. There'll be less attention that will be on her campaign in Toronto Centre. And normally, the Greens might be able to put all of their resources into winning in Toronto Centre, but I'm not sure if Anime Paul is going to have the support of the federal party and give her the resources that she needs to win that riding. So that's not going to help. It has to then be a bit more of a local campaign, and I'm not sure if that'll be enough. But for Anime Paul, the best way to put the leadership turmoil behind her is to win a seat. If she doesn't have a seat, I think that these issues are not going to go away, and it's just going to be too difficult uh, for her to, to hold on. She needs a seat. We've seen what's happened without one over the last few months, And I think that that is the kind of thing that she needs to do to solidify her leadership. Without it, um, she might still have to face these these issues again and again. And again, that is if she is still leader, the federal council will be voting on the 20th of July to see if there should be a leadership vote. And if there is, and if that motion passes, the Green membership will vote in mid-August, which could line up right with an election call. So... Yeah, the Greens aren't making it easy for themselves. Okay, next from uh, Neo Maxwellian on Twitter. I don't think that's his name, but his <laughs> Twitter handle is at Neo Maxwellian. He asks, how do you think voters' personal approval ratings affect their electoral outcomes? I see many people talk about how O'Toole's sinking perceptions are costing the CPC and how Singh's high numbers are buoying the NDP. But is there good evidence those are good indicators or causal? Uh, I think that's a really good question. I'm a big personal believer that leadership is the main driver of elections. And I think that you can see that, particularly when you're talking about the two parties that are vying for government. When you're the leader of a party that could form government, if you're not popular, you hurt your party's chances. Um, We'll actually talk about this in the historical uh, segment. Uh, But this was the case in 1974, Robert Stanfield Uh, His personal numbers were dragging down the PC's uh, Pierre Trudeau's. His um, improving personal numbers boosted the Liberals. But more recently, you know, look at the 2011 election. Michael Ignatieff was very unpopular. He had very low personal numbers. And it was only during a campaign that that started to sap Liberal support. Liberals going into the campaign in 2011 were more or less where they were in 2008 in the high 20s in the polls. But Ignatieff's numbers were really low, and he eventually started dragging them down. Uh, and I think that you also see that, for example, in Andrew Shearer's numbers in uh, 2019. His numbers worsened during the campaign, and it just made it impossible for the Conservatives to make any headway. But if you're not a major party, if you're not vying for government, then I don't think it is as much of an issue, because we saw Jagmeet Singh's numbers improve dramatically in the 2019 campaign, but the NDP's numbers didn't really follow all that much. Uh, they ended up with 16% of the vote, which isn't a, which was a lot better than where they were on track to end up at the beginning of the campaign. But uh, I, I think it shows that for the smaller parties, you can have a popular leader and that helps. But because you're more popular than the leaders vying for government, doesn't mean that you're going to win the election. Because I think that people perceive leaders differently based on whether they think this person will be the next prime minister or not. You can like someone... And, but still not feel that they should run the country. And so that means that you might have a good opinion of, of a leader, but that doesn't get them your vote. Uh, and the last question came from a Twitter account, Riding of the Day, 
have some interesting uh, posts on ridings across the country. Uh, with the Tories polling lower than usual, do you think there will be a party split? Maybe a Leslin Lewis social conservative uh, party and a Michael Chong fiscal conservative party? Uh, my answer is no, um, at least not yet uh, or anytime soon. I think uh, first past the post um, really puts a limit on the ability of other parties to kind of split off and do their own thing. Is it possible that we could see the Conservatives split after the next election if they have a really bad result and um, they elect a leader who's a, a very moderate leader? I mean, anything can happen. Um, but uh, I, I'm not sure if, if the example of the 1990s is anything that uh, a lot of Conservatives want to replicate. Uh, if we were in a proportional representation system, then yes, I think something like that would probably happen pretty easily because you could just add up the parties and they could govern in a coalition anyway, so it wouldn't really make much of a difference. But uh, I don't imagine that a social conservative party uh, will emerge uh, out of the recent difficulties the conservatives are having. Uh, the social conservative wing of the party seems relatively content to try to work within the party to move forward their issues. Uh, I'm not convinced that they believe that they can do much more as a small rump party in the House of Commons that ends up contributing to the election of liberal governments. Okay, next for the Every Election Project, my look at uh, past elections in Canada's history. We're going back to 1974. The federal election of 1974 took place on July 8th, so 43 years ago this week. And there are a lot of parallels between the 1974 election and what could become the 2021 election. First of all, the prime minister was some guy named Trudeau, and it was a Trudeau looking for a re-elected government with a majority in the midst of a summer. Trudeau was elected in 1968 with a big majority government. That was that Trudeau mania election. He was reduced to a minority government in 1972. And then in 1974, in this summer election, he was trying to regain a majority government. So there's lots of parallels between what's happening now and what happened 43 years ago. Now, the Liberals were the incumbents. Pierre Trudeau had been prime minister since 1968 when he won a leadership race. The Liberals had been in government since 1963. It was Lester Pearson who uh, was the prime minister between 1963 to 1968. So the Liberals had been there for quite some time, and Trudeau too had been there for a while. He was going for a uh, what would be a third mandate. The Progressive Conservatives formed the official opposition. They were under Robert Stanfield. He had been leader of the PC since 1967, and he already had two federal elections under his belt, and he had 11 years before that as Premier of Nova Scotia. The New Democrats, they were the third party. They were under David Lewis. He had been leader since 1971, so he had already had one election uh, by 1974, that 1972 election. And again, there's some parallels. David Lewis was uh, an immigrant. He was a Jewish, so he was a bit of a trailblazer for uh, federal party leaders. And you could say, certainly, the same thing for Jagmeet Singh of the NDP. Another party was uh, Social Credit. Uh, generally, it was known as the Creditsist because they had all of their seats in Quebec. Uh, they were under Réal Carouette, who had been the leader since 1963, but that was of the uh, Ralliement des Creditistes, which was an offshoot of the Social Credit Party. By 1971, he was the leader of the Social Credit Party, uh, which at that point, though, was pretty much just a Quebec-based party. The Socreds 
winning in Alberta was something they used to do, but they weren't doing it at this point in history. This was really a rematch of the cast of characters from 1972. It's not exactly the case here. Uh, Aaron O'Toole's new leader for the Conservatives, Annemie Paul's new leader for the Greens. But in 1974, the leaders of the party were the same as those that had faced off in 1972. Now, the 1972 election was not a good one for the Liberals. They didn't seem to be very energetic in that campaign. Uh, Trudeau's slogan was, the land is strong, which was kind of meaningless and vague and kind of symbolized the lack of a vision and purpose to the Liberal campaign. The New Democrats um, had a good campaign under uh, David Lewis, their new leader, and uh, the Conservatives were able to uh, win some seats too, and the Liberals were reduced to a very slim minority government, particularly uh, due to big losses in Ontario. After the 1972 campaign, uh, Trudeau increased Ontario's presence in cabinet to try to rebuild some of those bridges and relied on NDP support. Sound familiar? Uh, There was more of a focus on social issues, and in that way it was like the minority years under Lester Pearson in the 1960s. By 1974, the BC NDP government of Dave Barrett, whose win in 1972 had helped boost the federal NDP in British Columbia, was becoming unpopular. Uh, The progressive conservatives, they had their own internal struggles, particularly over bilingualism, and that split the caucus uh, over official bilingualism, and the liberals were happy to foment that split in the caucus. The Liberals were leading in the polls in the spring of 1974, and they presented a budget that they knew the NDP could not support. And when it was defeated, it triggered the election. Now, the Liberals changed up their campaign team for the 1974 election. They brought in one of the top pollsters. They took a much more of a strategic, focused approach to the campaign, much more of a modern kind of campaign. And Trudeau himself campaigned on that defeated budget. He was much more combative. He was more energetic than he was in 1972. He seemed to have the same energy or had some of the same energy that he did back in 1968 uh, in the Trudeau mania election. The PCs, they went on attack on the issue of inflation. This was the top issue in the 1974 campaign, according to the polls. The PCs proposed wage and price controls. They had some system that was kind of vague. Stanfield would sometimes include a lot of exceptions and explanations that didn't really answer a lot of questions. This plan came under attack from all sides, and uh, Trudeau very famously uh, made fun of it by saying you couldn't just control prices, you can't just go zap, you're frozen. The PCs were also looking to cut spending. This was uh, when the Trudeau government had big deficits, and they were promising lots of uh, new spending programs, new measures that would cost money during the campaign. Stanfield was also becoming very unpopular. He was uh, a drag on the PCs. He didn't have the same charisma as Trudeau. He was sometimes awkward. Uh, Lots of uh, folks in the media would publish photos that made him look a little little bit like a fool. You might have seen the photo of him trying to kick a football. Uh, Whereas Trudeau, he had regained some of his his swagger from 1968. But because the campaign became about Trudeau, Stanfield, inflation, how they were going to handle that issue, the NDP was kind of squeezed out of the campaign. Barrett was hurting the New Democrats out in BC, and there was no debate in 1974. Trudeau didn't want to participate in one, so there wasn't a debate. That could have been the kind of thing that David Lewis could have used to his advantage. By the end of the campaign, the polls were suggesting that the Liberals were in majority territory, but the polls had been off in 1972, and a lot of people were dismissing them 
because of that. In 1974, they didn't believe the polls because of what had happened two years before. But in the end, the Liberals did emerge with a majority government when the votes were counted. The Liberals won 141 seats. That was an increase of 32 since 1972. They took 43% of the vote. They were up nearly five points from the last election. The PCs, they dropped 12 seats to 95 Their share of the vote was 35%, so that was unchanged. The NDP, they had a lot of losses. They lost nearly half their caucus, dropping from 31 to 16, taking just 15% of the vote. They dropped more than two points. The Créditistes, they actually saved the furniture a little bit. They dropped four seats to 11. Uh, They they had 5% of the vote uh, across the country. They were second in Quebec. And there was also one independent who was elected. This was Leonard Jones in New Brunswick. He was a progressive conservative who opposed bilingualism. So it, it kind of contributed to some of the issues the PCs were have, having. So this was a majority government for the Liberals that they regained in a summer election. They won uh, the most seats in Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland and Labrador. They gained seats in Atlantic Canada, in Quebec, in Saskatchewan, in British Columbia. But key was the gain of 19 seats in Ontario at the expense of the Progressive Conservatives, primarily in, in southwestern Ontario, in the Niagara region, and around Toronto. PCs, they won the most seats in Western Canada, including sweeping Alberta. Uh, Stanfield also won the most seats in his own province of Nova Scotia, but they had big losses in Ontario, and they were still just able to win three seats in Quebec. Uh, Stanfield ended up resigning before the next election would be held. For the NDP, they dropped nine seats in British Columbia. Liberals and the PCs both picked those up, uh, primarily in and around Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. They were shut out in Alberta and all of Atlantic Canada except Nova Scotia and Lewis ended up resigning after this campaign. The Creditists, they lost official party status. They had rebounded a little bit in 1968, 1972, but dropping to 11 meant they didn't have that recognized party status in the House of Commons. This was the start of their final decline, and they'd be reduced to zero seats by 1980. Now, Trudeau would end up governing the country for another five years, would face two new leaders in 1979, and while he would lose that campaign, he would win one more in 1980, and then face the challenges of national unity and the repatriation of the Canadian Constitution uh, before he finally stepped aside in 1984. 43 years later, the question is whether another Trudeau can use a summer election to turn a minority government into a new majority mandate. And that's it for the second episode of The Writ Podcast. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to The Writ at thewrit.ca. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you still have about two weeks to take advantage of the special launch offer and save 15% off the monthly and annual subscription rate forever. You lock in your rate, you'll have it forever, as long as you want. Anyway, it should be a pretty busy summer, so you'll want to have access to all the content on the site. I'll be back next week with a new episode of The Writ Podcast. So until then, thanks for listening.